All right, so uh, about once every other week or so, me and my friend DeWitt, who is, uh, he's, an, uh, he's the head usher here, so you've probably seen him pop in and out. Uh, we get together in the mornings on Wednesdays, about 8 a.m., right after he drops his son off, and we either go for a walk in my neighborhood or we meet at a coffee shop and we talk and we share updates on our lives and our marriages and our finances and our parenting and our personal relationship with Jesus. We call this a discipleship time. And sometimes these relationships, I have many of them, sometimes they're mentor, mentee relationships. Like Christian and I do the same thing. We get together weekly and he's more of a mentor in that role, in that relationship. Me and DeWitt, uh, even though he's a little bit older than me, I won't say how much older, uh, we're more like peers. We're in the very same stations of life in many ways. And so we get together every week and, or every other week and we, we talk. And this week I came in uh, to our time. Actually, he texted me right before our time. He said, hey, uh, did we say today or tomorrow to get together? And I, I was like, today. I need to talk to a friend. And uh, so we're, he was like, all right, I'm there. So we get together, and uh, I come in, and I'm overwhelmed, and I'm anxious, and I'm working through all kinds of stuff uh, through, you know, kind of a heavy week, a hard couple of days in some ways. And, and I just proceed to kind of just dump it all on do it, right, over a cup of coffee at the Hive. And, uh, and he listens, and he reflects with me, and he asks searching questions, and he invites me to see myself differently and the story of God in my life. And, and we pray, and we talk, and we laugh, and he laughs, and he laughs at me because that's what he likes to do. And, um, and you know, after our time, before we wrap up, he says, you look much better. And he meant not just like, I feel better, but I, he's like, your face, it looks better. Like, you look better than when you came in. Um, and there was something about that, right? Something about that moment, that experience. And, and then I get home, and within a couple minutes, there's this knock on my door. And it's DeWitt. And he's got Waterloo's, because he knows those are my favorite. Uh, he's got popcorn that I don't even have to make. It's just already made. And he's got cream puffs that I, he knows are my favorite Sabbath treat. So I, sometimes I'll just send him, like, what I'm eating on Sabbath. I'll send him a picture and be like, dude, this is what I'm eating on Sabbath. But... So he knows these things. So he just drops them by and says, hey, I love you. Just want you to feel encouraged. Grateful for you. Isn't that special? We're in this series entitled Love Where You Live. Love Where You Live. And we're talking about loving, not just what the city does for you, not just the beautiful space that we live, which is a beautiful space, but also loving the people that we live with both in our church community and amongst our neighborhoods and in the businesses we frequent and in the schools we go to. Love where you live. And today I want to talk about this idea of the message that we bring as we go to the people that we love. What is the message that we bring to others? The Christian message has always been a message of salvation and of eternal life. But what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to have eternal life? The message we bring lies in the answers to those questions. And Jesus offers answers to those questions. Let's look together here at Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. He didn't say he wasn't God. He didn't say he wasn't good. He just asked him why he thinks he's good. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around at his disciples and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we've left everything to follow you. A little affirmation, please, Jesus. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields, along with persecutions, ta-da, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This man comes to Jesus and asks a really great question. What do I need to do? How, what what, what ha needs to happen in order for me to inherit, to receive, to be bestowed upon, eternal life. And Jesus gives him a list of commands that he already knows. And Jesus knows this guy already knows these commands. He knows the situation. He knows that this answer really isn't going to satisfy this guy. This guy needs something more than what he already agrees with, what he already understands God to be, more than just rules to follow. He's been doing that his whole life. He says, since I was a boy, Jesus, I've been doing this. He's been a good kid. Hasn't gotten in a lot of trouble. He's got success because of his lifestyle and his way of living. And yet, he's never experienced the kingdom. He's never experienced eternal life. He's never experienced transformation. Something is still missing. And Jesus he leans in, I love it, it says he just, he loves this guy. He leans in and he gives him a command that would reshape his entire identity, his entire way of doing relationships, a command that would change his career path. He says, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. In these two sentences, Jesus offers three radical shifts in perspective for this young man. 
about what eternal life truly is and what he's been missing out on in all of his efforts to just be good. First shift, a shift in identity. In the story that he tells himself, we are narrative creatures. You tell yourself a story about where you come from and who you are and where you're going and what life is all about. And this young man, he had a story. Today, in our day and age, in our kind of modern way of thinking about identity and the story we live in, it's, it's kind of boiled down into primarily a story that exists with inside of me. My truth. My light. My journey. Who I define myself as is my story. And we journey to discover our authentic selves, right? And we, we search, because we have these little slogans, these little mantras like, it's not about the destination, it's all about the journey, right? Because there's this thing this, that we say, hey, you've got to discover you. You've got to figure out who you are. It's a light within you that just needs to be discovered. How's that working for you? Do you feel a little bit of a burden or a pressure or an anxiety trying to figure out that light within you that will suddenly reshape your life? Most people do. We are, in our minds, who we are inside of ourselves, our inner thought life. We're primarily, we think of ourselves often as kind of brains on sticks, right? We're all these little individuals, these little snowflakes that have these journeys to discover who we are, these individual brains on sticks. We're unique thinking individuals. And since this is the case, we are obsessed with things like inner happiness. I just need to find fulfillment. I just need to have satisfaction. And even the Rolling Stones will tell you, right? You just can't get none. This man had a story he believed about himself. His identity was wrapped up in his status, his uniqueness among other people. I'm good, and I'm wealthy, and I'm distinct from others. What would his family and friends say if he should start following around this homeless rabbi? What would that do to his identity? You know, before I started following Jesus, my identity was, had come at least to become a kind of a wandering pensive, subculture kind of a person. So I grew up skateboarding, which was, at least in the time I grew up, was a subculture. Right? Like, there weren't skate parks in my town. We hung out at the bank. We skateboarded at the school. We, skate we got kicked out and chased by police. It was a subculture thing, right? Um, I was a musician. Played a lot of music, parties, basements, just subculture stuff. I left my home in Massachusetts and drove 3,000 miles to Los Angeles with less than $200 to just figure it out. And this was kind of who I was. It was kind of who my friends were. And, um, you know, in all of that, there was all kinds of other lifestyle stuff, right? There was recreational drug use. I was in the rec league, right? Whatever that means. I think about that where I'm like, recreational, like... Is there like a professional level of drug use too? Like, I was in the recreational league. I never made it to the pro status. But, um, but I remember, you know, 
this, this moment where I started to follow Jesus, I started to give things up, I started to change, I started to take on this new identity of one who was going to follow Jesus. And I remember the pushback from my friends. I remember them like, kind of like, yeah, that's cool. Do you like just get high and read the Bible? That's cool. <laughs> like they were trying to figure out like, what are you doing with this? You know what I mean? And then I'd stop and I'd try to hang out with them and it just wasn't, like we weren't gelling in the same way, right? Their lives were about other things now. My life was about something else. I was taking on a new story, a new identity that came from that story. And it shifted who I saw myself as. You know, Jesus doesn't give this guy philosophy. He doesn't give him some meditation to go do. You want eternal life? Hey, you just need to go get on the new diet, figure out your gut bacteria, go on a good hike. Like this, this will help you, right? This is not a prescription for a better work-life balance. He invites him to follow Jesus. To embody what Jesus does in his own life. We call this a discipleship or an apprenticeship. To go and imitate Jesus. He invites him to follow. He didn't say, hey, just agree with me that giving your money away and, or selling your stuff and giving your money away to the poor would be a great thing and you'll have eternal life. Just agree with me on that. Believe that. Do you believe that? I believe that. Okay, eternal life. That's not what he does. He says, you got to go do what I do if you want eternal life. If you want to find what you're looking for, the message then and to us now is that you are more than just your inner self. You are more than just a brain on sticks. You are more than just your inner enlightenment journey of agreement. You are invited to be reshaped in your humanity, in your body, in your character, in your relationships, in the way you view yourself and others and your work in all of your humanity. You are invited to be reshaped by following Jesus. Secondly, he gives them a shift in relating to others. He moves towards an entirely new relational model for this guy. This guy has really shaped his own life in many ways, right? He's gotten his own identity. He is a unique little puzzle piece that exists, separate from those poor people. Jesus offers to reshape him in his life as one who is no longer separate. And in fact, he, he takes him and he says, you are not unique. You are not unlike other people. You belong intimately connected to others. This is the next picture of what Jesus calls him to. Without fitting in to the picture of God, without being intimately, inescapably connected to the humanity that Jesus created, you are not who you think you should be. You, are not, you will never be who you want to be. You will never experience this eternal life. You will never reflect the image of God that you were called to reflect because God did not come to reflect the image of himself in an individual. God created them in the likeness of us, he says. It's community. And even Jesus lives in this triune community. 
friend told me once that I suffer from terminal uniqueness. That, you know, I, you just, you can't relate because you don't get it. You didn't go through it. You don't, you don't understand, right? Like, you don't understand my story, my journey. Jesus comes and he just blows all that up. Because here he is, he doesn't even sin ever, and yet he can relate to everything you go through. He can relate to temptation, sadness, loneliness, despair, joy, fatigue. He loved to take a good nap. He can relate to crying, to laughing, to feeling isolated, to feeling abandoned, to getting tired of people. You're like, amen, Jesus, I can relate. Jesus invites this guy now into a new way of relating. Somebody tapped their husband on the, sh- on the leg right now. I won't say who, but they're like, see, Jesus gets you, honey. <laughs> Jesus invites him into a new way of relating to others now. You are not unique, Mr. Rich Young Ruler, Mr. Good Guy who built your life yourself. You belong deeply connected to others regardless of status or race or politics or economics or whatever. You will only be who you were created to be when you are inescapably connected. He offers him a third shift. A shift from how he currently views his vocational work. This new type of work altogether, he says. He goes, hey, look, you you are going to shift from being one who is concerned with storing up for himself who sees himself, my calling in life is to store up for myself. He says, now you will be one who works in a new type of field, one where you give away, where you are generous towards humanity. This is his new calling, life in the lens of abundance and no longer scarcity. There is enough. You don't have to compete. Jesus ties all three of these identities into this shift. If you can go back one. This new home, this new relationships, these new brothers and sisters, this new vocational work, these new fields, this this new labor in his life of what it means to be in his kingdom, to have eternal life. Are you with me right there? And this might be a potential shift for some of us of what eternal life even means. We tend to hear biblical language like eternal life, and we think when we die someday, right? So this could be the next slide now. Thank you. We tend to think later on, after I'm dead, after my mortality is done, then I will receive eternal life. Have you ever thought of it like that? You're like, no, I totally get this. What are you talking about, Elias? You don't even need to talk about this. And while that's true, that's not actually what Jesus or this young man are talking about. They're not talking about someday when you die. What they're referring to, this eternal life, this life in the kingdom, in fact, it's hardly ever used in the Bible ever as something that happens later on when you die. They're referring to now heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the eternity of how humanity was created to live, crashing into your mortality now. You cross the threshold into the kingdom, and now you live this way. You are practicing heaven today. Are you with me? This is the kingdom. Eternal life. The word, it literally means unto the age. Right? 
the phrase uh, it means unto the age, a life of eternity that you will experience with Jesus now and forevermore. Not just believe that you will have eternal life someday when you die, but actually follow Jesus and experience eternal life right now. Participate in this sacred overlap that's happening. Are you with me? Anyways, this guy doesn't want to do it. <laughs> he goes, you know what? I'm, I'm out of here. This is too much, Jesus. And he decides against the invitation, and he goes away sad at the cost it would take. And, and the disciples are just like, whoa, this is not good for us, right? Because we're not good. We're not law-abiding Jews. We're not wealthy in status. We're kind of a rough group of people. Like some of us are a little violent. Some of us curse a little bit. Some of us have some racist issues. You know what I mean? Like some of us have some things that we're still, we're not that. So how can we be saved? And Peter kind of like, hey, Jesus, we gave up everything, right? We're good. Are we good? <laughs> we're good, right? But, but this is important for us. G Peter connects this idea of eternal life suddenly to salvation. How can we be saved? Okay, so what does it mean to be saved? In your mind, in your imagination, when you think of this word to be saved, what does that mean? What does that bring up for you? I can tell you for me, at you know, five or six years old, raised in kind of a charismatic, Protestant, non-denominational church world, which is much of the church world today, right? I was taught that, hey, upon death, if you have not accepted Jesus in your heart, you will be turned over to hell. Have you ever heard that before? And that didn't sound so good. So I, I said, okay, well, how do I, I, I want to be saved then? And so I prayed this prayer to have Jesus come into my heart and be saved. And then probably somewhere in my early teens, preteens, in guilty moments, I would pray the same prayer again. And pray it over. And maybe just double check, just, you know, double stamp that one. Make sure it still works. It's still, still sticking, right? And then later on, at around 20 years old, I was taught uh, through the scriptures in a community of people like this. I was taught that, hey, this idea of the sinner's prayer, um, which is what that idea is, it really has no biblical basis. Like nobody was ever converted that way, ever. No disciples taught that. No disciples used that as something to help people become Christians, ever. But instead, there was this thing called repentance, which was like, okay, what's that about? And discipleship and baptism and lordship to Jesus. And suddenly, they all integrated into each other. And I went, okay, I get it because it's from Scripture, and I can see it in both the disciples' lives and their practice and what they taught and what Jesus taught them. Great, makes sense. Let's do that. Now, I'm saved. Feels good. The only thing I got to worry about now is this thing that I hear about called falling away. Don't want to do that. Right? Like if I stop reading my Bible too much or I start sinning too much or I stop coming to church, I'm in danger of falling away off of one scripture that says falling away. And I, you know, that's a gamble at, wor at best and a death sentence spiritually at worst, right? Like, so I better not do that. Salvation was somewhat of like a membership card. And I think in many ways it's like that in our minds, right? Like you receive it, can be kind of lost or maybe revoked if you're not careful, right? But you better have it when you show up to heaven's gates someday. You better have your membership card. Jesus comes and offers a very different view of salvation. I think I've got a slide for that too. Sorry, my slides are a little all over the place today. Thank you. 
Salvation. In the biblical language, salvation has really to do with escaping the, the wrath of God. Sounds like a good idea, right? The wrath of God was always an outcome of humanity living in a way that was outside of the design of God. So, for instance, Israel would worship other gods and be abusive to each other, and God would send his wrath in the form of another nation coming and taking them away and enslaving them. Salvation from that wrath was liberation. They were freed from their enemies and brought back to God. Are you tracking? Another way that the wrath of God was experienced was through sickness and disease. So they would, again, go against the design of God, and the wrath of God would come upon them, a lot of times just from natural consequences, in these plagues and sicknesses. And salvation language in those places was healing. Salvation had way more to do with freedom and healing than it did with a membership to heaven someday. Are you with me right there? Salvation in our modern world, in our kind of, again, our brains on sticks, our, our individualist way of looking at things, salvation is kind of just a, it's kind of like this inner transformation that we think should happen for our internal crisis. Like we have these internal crises and we're like, I just need relief from this. I need to be saved. And we have this, this thing that happens and somehow there's this inner agreement with Jesus. We believe in the right things. We agree in the right things. And then there's this kind of salve that comes over our conscience like, okay, I'm good. I'm saved. Have you been saved? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you agree with Jesus? But this is a dim view of salvation. Salvation is much more encompassing you look at this it's used in three ways throughout the scriptures it's both past present and future salvation is something that happens to you yes it is the grace of God upon your life you are given justification for your life in ways that you cannot justify your own life by the work of Jesus on the cross and you accept that work and you place your faith in that work and your faith in that resurrection, and you're baptized, and you receive salvation. But you're being saved at the same time in the scriptures. It's an ongoing process that's still happening. There's this sanctifying work through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the work of the community, through the work of scriptures. There's a sanctifying work of continuing to free you from the curse to free you from the wrath of God. And it may show up in a curse or a wrath that has more to do with your family of origin and your past and abuse or neglect. Or it may be a curse or a wrath that has more to do with the things that you inflicted on yourself through your own coping mechanisms. But you're still, at, God is still after liberation and freedom in your life. It's an ongoing process. I was saved at my baptism, but I still didn't trust people. I still didn't feel free to give and to love and to be safe and to be vulnerable. I needed to continue to be transformed by the grace of God in that way. And it's an ongoing process. Christian and I were talking about it this week. My wife has talked to me about it many times over the years. I'm continuing to be saved. 
you never find a perfect Christian. That's true, I promise. <laughs> but I can guarantee you if you are in relationship with Christians who are living in the kingdom of God, Christians who are practicing the way of Jesus in their life in community, Christians who are devoting themselves to a new identity, a new way of doing relationships, and a new calling in their life, you will see Christians, people that are transforming year after year to become more and more people of love. It's not a therapeutic Jesus. It's not a Jesus who just makes you feel a little bit better about yourself inside. It's a Jesus that you follow who transforms you. Salvation is escaping the judgment of God, both in your past, both in your present, and someday. There will be an end to it all. We look at the world and we go, when will this end? Why is this so bad? How bad can things get? And God goes, don't worry. There will come a time. Accounts will be called. We will hold people, both the dead and the living, to account. There will be a judgment day. That's in the scriptures too. And salvation will be for those people who have found themselves in Christ. Paul says they'll be revealed as the children of God. And actually, in, the, in Romans 8, Paul says salvation isn't just for humanity. He says even creation will experience salvation. It'll be liberated. Creation itself with the children of God, liberated. Salvation is much bigger than a membership card. Are you with me right there? My point is this. Eternal life doesn't happen after you die. Salvation isn't a membership card. And if that's the message that you bring to the world, if those are the things that you think about when you go, how do I love the place where I live? I'm going to bring the message to people. You will bring only a rational, reasonable message aimed at one outcome, agreement. Why aren't more people becoming Christians? It's work, but I think also it has something to do with the fact that we live in a world that is shifting truth all the time. Truth is relative, and people are overloaded with content and information. They don't need another rational argument. They don't need another podcast or a TED Talk. Getting people to agree with you about anything is pretty tough these days. What if eternal life, what if salvation looked more like a black man and a white man getting together at a coffee shop, talking about their lives vulnerably, laughing at each other, sharing cultural differences? Do it, he, he schooled me on bones, and he said, look, you're not going to get this even though you've played dominoes before. Let me just tell you, you won't get this. But he gave me a beautiful analogy on the idea of bones, right? Which is dominoes. It's, I don't know if you know that. Anyways. Cultural differences. Background differences. Experiential differences. And yet here we are sharing at the table. Sharing the kingdom. And people around us are there to witness. What if the message we bring looks more like that? 
What if instead of thinking about how to share a message of rational, reasonable, biblical arguments to people, we thought about it as following Jesus in community together and then taking that following, that community, out into our community. Our dwelling with our neighbors as Christians. What if it's not worship services It's not great sermons. It's not incredible bands. It's not the right lighting. What if it's Christians that make people want to follow Jesus? What if it's Christians who go, I can love you even though you think differently than me because I see you as more than just the sum of your thoughts. It's easy to make enemies right now. Why? Because we look at humanity as just the sum of their thoughts. And so whatever they post in a sentence or two, we go, oh, I already got them dialed in. Enemy. Right? The only time Christianity has ever stood out and made a difference, it's often on the edges, it's often the creative minority, but it's the time when Christians love their enemies. Anytime Christians stop doing that and they get in bed with culture and government, it never goes well for the church. What if the kingdom of heaven looked more like that? What if before we invited somebody to study the Bible, We invited them into our homes. We hosted them at a meal. We broke bread with them. We performed the gospel through the breaking of bread and inclusion, and we welcomed them to the the dinner table. We said, hey, you are welcomed here. I'm in solidarity with you. What if we did things a little bit more like Jesus, and we brought the message through proximity with our lives? We'll get to the rational stuff. We'll get into the scriptures. We'll, we'll work through the stuff. But let's start by being like Jesus. Who, the cross, the message of the cross is that he came to dwell among us. He served us. He took on our humanity, sin and all. And he gave himself up for us. So that we could have his definition of eternal life and salvation. Let's follow him even to the cross in that way. Let's pray for our community.